Good morning and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX, where today we are excited about things that we found in the ground. In the dirt. In the dirt. That's because this past week has been National Archaeology Week. National Archaeology Week, yes. Uh, my name's Eleanor and I'm in the studio here with uh, my regular offsider Mitchell. Hello. Uh, and we're doing a bit of a pre-record because we're very excited about the fantastic science behind archaeology. Yes. Uh, we've got heaps of information for you about what archaeology is, what people have discovered, some fantastic digs that people have done around the world, and some really interesting people who are doing those digs. But before we get into the archaeology, there's another special day coming up pretty soon uh, that I think Mitchell is going to be super passionate about and yeah. probably knows some facts about. Mitchell, what's the special national day coming up? Yeah, so the past week has been National Archaeology Week, but... Uh, this time next week, on the 5th of June, it is the first National Fossil Day. National Fossil Day? National Fossil Day. Oh my god. Yeah, so uh, 5th of June is National Fossil Day because that, guess what, is the date that the first fossils in Australia were discovered. Okay, so how, what what were the fossils that we discovered? Yeah, so um, the if anybody's heard of megafauna... Basically, mm-hmm. the first fossils in Australia were of megafauna. Those, so those are the really big mammals. They weren't dinosaurs in the traditional nope, sense. Nope, nope, nope. Mega is big and fauna is animals. So, yeah, megafauna is literally just big animals. Okay, how so, big are we talking? Like, Are we talking like a big dog or, uh, you know, a, a sort of a horse size? Or So, you're looking at horse sized and bigger. Oh, so, uh, some of the biggest representatives of those megafauna were Diprotodon, okay. which is a, basically a great big lanky wombat. They're not quite wombats. I've tried to start calling them wombeasts. Mm, I like that. Because they've got much longer legs and they don't really look like an oversized wombat. Wombats but, are huge. I always, I'm always surprised by how big modern wombats are when I see them. And they're really solidly built yeah. as well. Um, wombats are tough. But basically, uh, uh, a wombeast the size of a four-wheel drive... Mm. They're looking at a marsupial that's the though the biggest marsupials a marsupial big enough for me to ride to work inside its pouch. Wow! Um, looking at giant birds as well. So uh, the biggest of these megafaunal birds was an animal called Dromo ornus, mm. which means running bird. You're looking at a giant flightless goose the size of a camel. <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah, basically. Um, and the top predator amongst these Australian megafauna was an animal called. Uh, Megalania. Megalania. It was once known. It's now classified as a species of Varanus, which is goannas. Okay. Basically looking at a goanna that's about six metres long. Oh. Yeah. That's also terrifying. That's, so a, that's a lot what of What you're goanna. telling me is that Australia was very, very scary. Very, very scary. How many How many years ago was this? Uh, of... So you're looking at uh, 50,000 years ago is when your first Aborigines show up. Yeah. basically, or a bit before then. Mm. And the extinction of the megafauna is kind of a bit of a bit of both between uh, climate change at the end of the last ice age and the arrival of Aborigines in Australia. Okay. Not so much from direct hunting, it seems, but use of fire uh, changing the... Changing the landscape. Changing the and, landscape mm. and the plants okay. that these, uh, these big animals depended on. Well, as exciting as those big animals sound, I'm oh, so cool. We know these animals existed because yep. of the fossil these record. These fossils, um, and these fossils were first discovered by two blokes, um, uh, but uh, Sir Thomas Mitchell, the fourth Surveyor General, the fourth Surveyor General, General of New South Wales, and um, George Rankin were first exploring the Wellington Caves. 
Okay. Uh, Where are those? They're in Wellington. Oh. Uh, Isn't that in New Zealand? No, it's uh, there's a Wellington in New South Wales as well. Oh, okay. It's a couple I didn't of it's, that. it's a I'm couple sorry. of hours it's a couple of hours north of couple of hours drive north of here. Okay. Um, dirty great big limestone caves, and Thomas Mitchell and George Rankin were exploring these caves, mm. and there was a quite a drop down, basically a great big hole in the ground. Okay. They wanted to climb down. They tied off a rope. Um, on a branch to get down into these caves and lower themselves. One of these, we don't. It doesn't specify who, but somebody lowered themselves down. Lowered themselves down this rope, down this hole. They got most of the way down and then it broke. Mm. And then, on have it, upon further examination of this branch, turns out it was a femur. Oh. Of one of these giant flightless birds. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So um, they they sort of stumbled across evidence of of the f- an ancient. Life, yeah, the first fossils in Australia. They literally like it fell on them. That's almost. so Australian. I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah, it's pretty. A guy fantastic. falls down a hole because he accidentally found a fossil. Yeah, right. Um, and they discovered heaps of the. So Diprotodon um, was one of these animals, and Megalania were both discovered at the Wellington Caves, along with not Dromornis, but one of its closest re- close relatives, Genionis. Okay. There's another one of these giant flightless birds was also discovered. And the giant short-faced kangaroos, uh, Procoptodon, they're like a two metre tall. So they were all in this in this similar in this, area. In these caves. So probably uh, these animals have probably fallen down holes as well and ended up in the bottom of these caves, same as the blokes that found them so many years afterwards. That's incredible. Um, and they actually got sent... They weren't described in Australia. They actually got sent back to the UK, like London and Paris. Okay. And the first paleontologist to describe these megafauna fossils from Australia was uh, a bloke called Sir Richard Owen. Mm-hmm. He's also the guy that named dinosaurs dinosaurs. Oh wow! So he had a pretty big job. Yeah, right. So he's like he's a little bit of a big deal to to dinosaur lovers. Yeah, fair um, enough. And there was another bloke who kind of got involved with these fossils a little bit before they got sent back to Europe. Uh, there were, I think, they might have been on display in New South Wales, or at least they were hanging out in Sydney for a while. Yeah. And this other bloke comes along in a boat, and he's a bit of a naturalist. And wants to have a look at these fossils. Because before they got sent back to London, everybody assumed they were, um, well, they're really, really big animals. Mm. So everybody kind of assumed they were elephants and mastodon. Yeah. And so this naturalist is like, elephants in Australia? This is incredible. That's a bit mad. And gets a look at them and has a think about them. And then gets back on his boat, the Beagle, and sails back to England. And then writes a book about evolution sometime later on. It's Charles Darwin. I was going to say, this yeah. guy's sounding kind of familiar. Yeah, Charles Darwin like had a look at these fossils from Wellington before they got sent back oh, to... Oh, my goodness me. So it's a, kind of a big deal. Yeah, these, I'll say. These fossils from Wellington um, for somewhere that Eleanor has never heard of. <laughs> um, and, the, and the caves themselves are pretty spectacular. Gorgeous limestone caves with okay. all their oh, stalactites fantastic. and stalagmites. And so the, the anniversary of this big discovery is now going to be National Fossil Day. National Fossil Day. And what's taking... Is there anything happening to celebrate? Um, we're actually... The National Dinosaur Museum is actually going to have a table set up at the museum in Canberra. The National Museum. Okay. Um, to talk about that and show off some fossils and cool stuff. Well, that's really engage exciting. The public, and we we'll probably have some other things going on as well. Ah, oh, well, yeah. thank you very much for that. That's it's kind of it's kind of the first one, so we're kind of just getting it set in place. It's the first official. It's the first national... official national fossil day. The first observance. Ah, oh, well, yeah. it's a very exciting time to it's be interested cool. in science. It is. What a what a fantastic time! And 
I think we might go to a track. Uh, just in the on the theme of today, uh, we're going to listen to Pompeii by Bastille. That was Bastille with a song called Pompeii uh, because it's National Archaeology Week and we are talking about digging things out of the ground and Pompeii had to be dug out of the ground. Yeah, lots of things to dig in. Yeah. In, in Pompeii. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to talk about that a bit later on. Uh, in the meantime, archaeology and paleontology kind of both seem to involve a lot of digging through a lot dirt. Of, a lot of digging. A lot, a lot of, of dusting. Lots of old bones. Lots of sifting through things and making incredible discoveries in pits. Yeah, and a lot of sitting around in a lab looking at bones very, very closely. But there is sort of this key difference between paleontology, which is studying ancient Ancient, organisms. Yeah, so ancient life and fossils. And archaeology, which... Is people stuff. Okay, so... Mm. How many dinosaurs are there in the Indiana Jones movies? Uh, I, I can't answer that. It's, I haven't seen them recently. Oh, it's it's none. Is it? They're none. Yeah, because Indiana Jones is an archaeologist. Well, there you go. Not a paleontologist. And I wonder if he's an accurate depiction of a modern archaeologist with his hat and his whip. Maybe the whip. I don't know about the hat. Oh, wait, no, the other way around. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a lot more that bit where they're digging in the ground for that the stuff and less of the swinging around temples and yeah, yeah. i the, feel like there'd be some issues if you were starting to swing around through temples there'd be preservation yeah. and you have to be real careful with these artifacts disturbing the um disturbing the buildings and everything like that so archaeology as we said is is about people so it's about studying ancient cultures and mm. i guess it's I mean, this is a science show where where the physiologic science show uh here on 2XX but there is there is sort of a scientific method that's applied to the very careful study of human artifacts. And I think that you'd be a fool to say that we didn't learn anything interesting about the history of human scientific endeavours through archaeology as well. Yep. Um, it's also very, very closely interlinked with other sciences. It's usually very heavily involved with geology and physics and chemistry and, chemistry, and, yeah. and of course, paleontology and all these things uh, linked together to give us a kind of picture of what was taking place however many thousands of years ago. Uh, but this guy in the 15th century called Flavio Biondo, he kind of was one of these first uh, trailblazers in the field of archaeology. He went to ancient Rome and he did this big systematic survey of all the ruins there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds like an incredibly nerdy pursuit, but <laughs> but very important for understanding a, an ancient culture. And so he basically uh, went off and mapped and analysed all the ruins that he could see, and that was sort of hallmark one of the one of the commencing moments of, of archaeology, archaeology, which is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, some very early dig sites were usually things that were quite big and easy to see. So uh, it was quite easy to find Stonehenge, for instance. Oh, yeah. Uh, it didn't have to do too much fine dusting to no. discover that one. But that then became one of the first sort of scientific archaeological dig sites. That's pretty cool. Because people wanted to investigate what was left near what? Stonehenge. Yeah, because that would give you some pretty big clues on to what, how did these get here? The other, the other really big object that people have been doing archaeology on for a really long time Kind of the pyramids. The pyramids, yeah. <laughs> when you said really, really big things, my first thought was um, Statue of Liberty, and then I went, no. That's no, no, no that's we not archaeology. We know where that one came from. That came from France. That did. Yeah. Uh, and it used to be uh, orange. 
Did you know before that? Before it got all oxidized. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, because it's it's made of copper. So copper. Uh, mm. put copper now, right next to the ocean, and it gets oxidized, and it, it goes, goes green. Green, and that green is called verdigris. And it's called verdigris. Mm. So there's some chemistry for you. Yeah, I'm not entirely tuned in with the with the archaeological spin. Yeah, but that, that's a complete tangent on my 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 bad. Yep. One of the other really early sites that people started investigating, and we're going to talk about this a bit later because it's fascinating in my opinion, is Mount Vesuvius and the buried city of Pompeii, yeah. uh, which those, is super cool. All those people buried in ash. So that's coming up a bit later on. Uh, in the meantime, Mitchell. Pyramids. Pyramids. Well, first yeah. of all, the archaeological method. I mean, we've got to talk about why and how people actually go about doing the archaeology. Okay, first you get your pick <laughs> yeah. and your trowel, mm. and you kind of just take all the dirt off. Do you I, know? I have no idea. Okay. What, what, what's the, explain the archaeological method for me. So this fellow called Augustus Pitt Rivers. Yep. Um, he digs pits at Rivers. Got it? <laughs> he actually does have a very fortuitous name it's for pre- being it's pretty good. the founding father of archaeology. It's pretty good. Um, he basically started digging up his own land in England in the 1880s. So this was literally a guy going out into what was essentially his, his backyard paddock, yeah. yeah, and starting to dig it up. That's, that's pretty good. You don't have to ask anybody for permission. That's but great. hey, you know, England in the 1880s is probably littered with interesting artifacts yeah, given you got Rome and the, the Celts. And, and the Saxons. Uh, and... Just an absolute like field day, yeah, literally. In a field. <laughs> in a field. Spend a day in a field. So this guy uh, sort of came up with... What may to us seem very obvious as a, as a good method of collecting and scientifically analysing artefacts, but he, he sort of founded these two key ways of organising artefacts. The first one is that he would arrange the artefacts he found by type. Mm. So he wouldn't just put pots and, and swords in one pile. And he would, coins in the other. Yeah, he yeah. would sort them all into, into the type of object they were. Okay. And that's called typologically sorting. Yep. That's a very obvious that's, that's title. Pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. The other thing that he did was he would sort them then within those groups chronologically. Okay. So that means by time. Yeah. So he would try and find the earliest coin mm. uh, and sort them to the most recent. That's pretty... Yeah. So that, that's that's slightly trickier to do. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's incredible that he was able to, to sort of do this or at least to understand the importance of doing this mm. because then what you get is this... Uh, almost evolutionary picture of human artifacts and the cultural aspects of a of a human settlement. Yeah, how and you, you get, can see how, how they get, develop. How you get better at making pots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How yeah. pot design has improved. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that was really important is is that he was approaching it scientifically. He would not discard any artifacts. So yeah. previously, if people had sort of been wandering through a paddock and had found a lovely shiny jeweled crown and then a few ceramic pots. They yeah. might not have bothered cataloging or collecting the ceramic pots, yeah. but the jeweled crown, that's that awesome. Very fancy. Exactly. Yeah. But he stressed the importance of keeping all the artifacts, regardless of their value or their beauty or whether they seemed important. Or I like this guy. He was a completionist, yeah. and that's obviously the most scientific way to approach any well, sort yeah, of... you get you've got all your data. Yeah, it's exactly. It's always about collecting more data. Because if we cherry-picked just for shiny crowns, yeah. then we could say that, you know, from our records, it is shown that in in ancient England, they only used crowns yeah. for all their cutlery. And, and there, was, um, there was nobody here until the Romans showed up with their shiny, shiny crowns. Exactly. Yeah. So he was very um, methodical in his approach to digging up his own backyard, <laughs> which <laughs> I really respect. Oh, man. Uh, there's this other guy. Uh, in the 1880s, um, called William Flinders Petrie. 
Okay. And he also sort of fights with uh, Pitt Rivers for the title of the founder of archaeology because he was very involved in the Great Pyramids. So yeah. studying artifacts in Egypt and later on in Palestine. Uh, and he has, I, I've got a quote here from him, which is quite nice. Uh, he says, I believe the true line of research lies in the noting and comparison of the smallest details. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Science is writing stuff down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and writing it down accurately and, and to the smallest detail because yeah. those things are likely to be the things that are the most illustrative later on. So he was one of the first to ever scientifically investigate the Great Pyramids or methodically investigate them, but he also trained and mentored a lot of the later archaeologists who would go back to the pyramids and look for more interesting things. Like like what? Like what? So he what mentored... Find, what do you find in pyramids? What do you find in pyramids? He mentored uh, Howard Carter. Have you heard of Howard Carter? Uh, is he um, Peggy Carter's brother? <laughs> Sorry. No, no. <laughs> he is not. Um, <laughs> so Howard Carter was incredibly famous for discovering or uncovering... Uh, Tutankhamun's tomb. Yeah, I have heard of this guy. And there's this fantastic story about him and um, Lord Carnarvon, who was uh, funding the expedition, this wealthy lord who wanted... Mummies. Uh, who wanted mummies. Yeah. <laughs> desperately. Yeah. Uh, and he sent Howard Carter out, and Howard Carter learnt at, at the feet of um, Petrie, who was this fellow who first ever, you know, investigated the pyramids. Mummies. But the most interesting thing I think about Howard Carter is that he found the tomb of Tutankhamun, which is a fantastic discovery, mm. and then he was cursed. Oh, no. The curse Not of the curse. pharaoh. The mummy's curse. The mummy's curse. Yeah. And this was absolutely, like, the media of the day went mad for the curse. Absolutely mad for it. So, have you heard much of this story before? I, I did look it up and found out. That it, there was a lot less to it than I thought there was. <laughs> there there um, always that was, is. That was ages ago, and I don't remember any of the it's details. It's a fantastic example of a story getting spun out of proportion by Massively a long way. out of proportion. Yeah. So the story is that after, uh, well, in, in finding the tomb of Tutankhamun, uh, they found an inscription that basically said, you know, all ye who enter, yeah. you will be cursed. Uh, and they took this very, very literally, uh, or at least the media took it very literally, because after... Um, the tomb had been opened and the very precious cultural icon of the yeah, mummy of Tutankhamun right. had been sufficiently stolen and yeah. taken back to England. The fellow who was funding the expedition, Lord Carnarvon, was tragically, tragically struck ill. Uh, he mysteriously died several months after the tomb was opened, which is clearly causation. Yeah, the, I remember that being like, wait, I thought he died like the day after. No, it was several months. No, it months. was several months after. Uh, and he was, he was, uh, he died pretty mysteriously, really, but they think it was perhaps an infection from an insect bite. Yeah. And then there's rumour that the insect had bitten him on his left cheek, and when they opened, they unwrapped the mummy of Tutankhamun. He had a bite on his left cheek. Yeah, of course. And the newspapers just went crazy for it. <laughs> and the story was that when Lord Carnarvon died of this, of this infection, um, all of the power went out in Cairo. And what? But apparently back in the uh, – this was in – when was this? 
Yeah. This was in the 20s. Yep. Yeah. Apparently, in 1925, the power used to go out in Cairo a lot. <laughs> like, you couldn't go a couple of days, days. without there being a big power outage yep. in Cairo. It was not a, a sure thing back yeah. then. Um, so that wasn't mm, super... Super suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other... Uh, hallmark of a curse is that when Lord Carnarvon died back home in England at the exact same time, although we're not sure how they know this because instant messaging probably Didn't wasn't happen. a thing, yep. um, his his son reported that at this moment the family dog howled at the moon and then yeah. dropped dead. That pro- Well, okay, dropping dead happens a little less often. But dogs do tend to howl at the moon a lot. A lot. I also don't know how he reliable knew. the claim that the dog dropped dead is. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, so what, what what happened to this Carter fellow? Uh, he was all right. <laughs> <laughs> he was fine. He was the curse clearly didn't affect him. Okay. Uh, but basically, so this was the mummy was unwrapped in 1925. Yep. By 1929, eleven different people connected with the discovery of the tomb had died of unnatural causes. Yep. So this includes two of Carnarvon's relatives, um, Howard Carter's secretary. Uh, and a guy called Lord Westbury, who I don't know his involvement in the in the uh, expedition, but I assume it's money-related, given yeah. that he's Lord Westbury. Probably. But all this aside... Wait, how did Westbury die? He jumped off a building. Uh, Probably because he was scared of the curse. Well, this is the thing. I yeah. mean, if you're absolutely Self- terrified of a curse... A self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. And look, so this was... Newspapers, headlines, it's been a story that's been super popular for a very long time. time. In 2002, um, an Australian researcher actually at at Monash in Melbourne, uh, this guy called Mark Nelson, did a statistical study of all the people who were supposedly killed by the curse compared to all the people who uh, were connected with the uh, excavation but weren't killed. Yep. And he found no statistical difference in the median age of death between uh, the two groups. Brilliant. Uh, so he basically went through and went, yeah, no, it's <laughs> science, not a thing. Science ruining, science ruining everybody's fun again. Yes, exactly. Yep. Um, and and it, comes, it, it comes out that a lot of the stories associated with the curse were actually just completely made up. Um, so mm. this whole thing of the media spinning an exciting... Uh, scientific expedition. I want to write about curses. Oh, dude, just pick yeah. the the Large Hadron Collider is cursed. <laughs> yeah, anyone oh, who man. works at the Large Hadron Collider will die. die. Man, I'm <laughs> which gonna, they will. I'm going to start that. Yeah, I feel like you should. When did they turn it on? Um, oh, gosh, who knows? You need to find we out. We have to do an archaeological survey and then find out whose dog died that day. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to go to a track. Uh, this is. A song called Out of the Blue by Prides. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. Get hit by a curse and die out of the blue. (laughs) That was Out of the Blue by Prides. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And today we are digging into archaeology because it was National Archaeology Week this week. I hope you got out there with a trowel and Mm. did some archaeologing. Archaeologicaling. Archaeologying, I like archaeology. Yeah, I hope you got some digging done. Uh, We're in the studio talking about uh, exciting methods of discovering what people were up to in ancient times or perhaps slightly more recently. 
And before the song, we we kind of got carried away talking about the curse. Yeah, uh, curses are good. Tutankhamun's tomb and mm. the slightly fictional curse that was uh, <laughs> all about the media hype of the day. So if ever you see a news story saying blueberries cure cancer, uh, don't bemoan modern technology. These people have been making up ridiculous stories based very loosely on scientific expeditions for a long time. Very long time. Um, that one about you swallow seven spiders per year in your sleep was completely made up as well. Speaking yes, of stuff made up. That was made up as a test to see how quickly false information could spread. Yeah. You do not swallow seven spiders a no, year in your sleep. No. That would be a very poor evolutionary design if spiders <laughs> wandered willingly into the mouths of predators. Why are spiders doing that? It exactly. Make any sense. So, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Try and try and stop that one spreading or start a new one and see how far it spreads. But <laughs> make sure it's not a dangerous one. Don't no. be getting anyone to do any sort of weird detoxes or anything because it's it's not yeah, real. That's great. Do you know what do you know what do you know how you get a good detox going? How? Have a working liver. That does all your detoxing for you. Don't worry about yeah, livers it. Yeah, livers are real good for that. Livers are good for that. You're, you're gonna, you should start an Instagram about this. Should I? A wellness Instagram a wellness about Instagram. livers. Have a liver. We were talking about William Petrie. Yes. His name was William Petrie. Something Petrie. Yeah, William Flinders Petrie. There you go. Um, because he was sort of one of the fathers of archaeology. Uh, and he also kind of developed this system that people do still use, which is the idea of dating different layers of a dig yeah. by referring to a particular stylistic thing, usually on pottery. Or you, I think you were talking a bit earlier about coins before, Mitchell, the yeah. idea that it's very easy to date. Archaeologists love coins because if you're really lucky, they'll have the date stamped on the back. Which is super handy. Super handy for figuring out how old the stuff is. Or if not, you'll have the face of whoever was in charge at the time. Yeah, and back. that's probably quite well documented. Pretty well documented. Uh, so that's really handy. And and what Petrie really pioneered is this idea that if you are digging through different layers of sediment and you're sort of uncovering an interesting um, artifact mm. of some type, like a shiny, and it's shiny crown, like a shiny crown, but it's next to a pile of coins and they're all stamped, you know, twelve sixty three. Then yep. you go, okay, this crown's probably also from then. Um, so he was he was sort of one of the people who pioneered this idea of using the context in which you find things to date those things. Yeah, uh, that's one of those things that sounds like a no brainer, but nobody there would, there would be a point when nobody had thought to do that before. Well, the other thing is that things like design style is kind of subjective. So yeah, things fashions and fads have always existed, whether it's how you design your clay pots mm. or if it's man buns yeah this idea of uh, you can actually fit them to a bell curve right so the popularity of a particular trend early on there'll be a few people who sort of pick up on this trend yeah, it'll reach a peak popularity yeah which will have a, a time stamp associated with when everyone has a man bun yep and so then like six weeks ago hopefully <laughs> they start going out of style soon pretty much i feel like they have like yeah. i spent a lot of time on a university campus i feel like i'm a good um, observer. You get a good sample. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like they have started to... We're seeing the peak dropping back off the other half of that bell curve. That's good news. So this is really useful for archaeologists <laughs> if they were, say, doing a study of the different types of man buns yeah. in strata. In strata. Um, piles of, that's a disturbing thought, man buns in the dirt. <laughs> it's not appealing. It sounds like a sad indie folk album. <laughs> um, yeah. But the the distribution and the frequency with which you find a particular stylistic trait can help you date where that 
when that thing was from, yeah. basically. Like, yeah. if there's a lot of pots with a certain stylistic... With, with man buns painted on them. Yeah, then yeah. you know that it's from, oh, that era when they were real big. Yeah. Uh, whereas if there's just a few, you know it's either at the start or the end of that era. So he did some pretty cool work with that, That's which I thought cool. was quite yeah. nice. So, Mitchell, do you have a favourite archaeological discovery? Is there something that really interests you in terms of things that tell us about ancient cultures? See, I'm more of a paleontology guy, so I don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about about archaeology. But there is one really cool local one. Oh, a local one. A local one that tells a good story, at least. Okay. Um, it's actually it's from Tidbin Villa. Oh, really? Um, so there's this. Rock shelter, the Biragai rock shelter. I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, Biragai. Biragai. That's where that's where high uh, primary school students go on camp. Awesome. There's like yeah, I'm you not... go out there and you do some abseiling and stuff. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm not from Canberra, so I never did that. Oh, um, I, I neither did I. But anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, Biragai rock shelter uh, is the oldest occupied site in the ACT. Um, oh. Yeah, so see when it was first discovered, it got dated to twenty one thousand years old. Yeah, there's actually some more recent stuff, recent study of it done, showing that it's actually a bit older. Okay, it's um twenty five thousand years old. Ah, oh. the oldest occupation, o- oldest occupied area, or area, the oldest occupied place in the ACT is the Biragai Rock Shell. That's amazing. Aborigines here, twenty five thousand years old. So there's stone tools there that have blood. There's one with blood stain on it wait what so yeah there's there's a there's a stone tool there that has a blood stain on it not in the place you'd usually expect it to have a blood so stain. not like it's been used to cut up some meat or no. kill one of the mega i think it's there. not well yeah <laughs> kill some kangaroos or something. yeah but you've got uh i think it's a core mm-hmm. this is from memory so i might i might have it a bit wrong go look it up because it's really really cool yeah but anyway it's it's a bit unusual the blood stain not in the right place and the thinking is that somebody's been making this stone tool and has smashed their thumb or something. Oh, no. Yeah. So um, something's gone wrong and somebody's hurt themselves making this stone tool. And you think about banging rocks together, it's going to be a bit... You're not going to get it right every time. There's always a threat of yeah. something going wrong. So it might have been the first Australian swear word as well. Oh, that's so exciting. And that's bit, just that's just up the road. That's just up the road. That's in, in our own backyard. That that's amazing. It's such, a, it's such an insight into what life would have been like and and this whole idea of people are just people and if you're going to be making a, a an intricate tool and smash your hand up and bleed on it you're probably going to be unhappy about it yeah and that was right? just happening up the road from where we are up now the road, Timber Bella, yeah. that's super cool yeah oh i really like that one yeah okay what have you got for us Eleanor? well my favorite archaeological uh dig or discovery or i guess slow uncovering and mm. rebuilding thereof yep uh is one that I visited a couple of years ago. So I went to Bath in the yep. UK. Cool. Um, and it was beautiful and it was lovely and I was very lonely. Um, <laughs> I was traveling on my own. Uh, but Bath is named Bath because it's the home to some hot springs that yep. were occupied by Romans who liked to bath in them. That's, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, hot water was not as readily available. Yeah, okay. so, so if you got some hot springs there. And the hot springs themselves are fascinating. So in Bath, there's water bubbling up on, out of the ground, and it's it's hot water. Um, so obviously it's being heated by the sort of heat inside Earth, the geothermal energy. Hmm. But it turns out that the water bubbling up under Bath is actually rainwater that's been falling on this little patch of hills to the southeast, like quite a way. It's a bit of a hike. Yeah. Um, the Mendip Hills. Yep. Uh, so rain basically falls on these hills 
um, drips down into these limestone caves under the yeah. hills or these um, aquifers. Limestone caves again. Nice yeah. Link. Limestone mm. caves everywhere. This is mm. where the best archaeology happens, or the best geology in this case. So this water drips down between 2,700 and 4,300 metres underground. Um, so it goes on a big journey from the sky to deep underground. It travels along through sort of fissures and faults in the ground, and then it's heated up in that process by the geothermal energy, so the, the latent heat of all the hot rock under, yep. under the earth. And that heats the water up to 70 to 100 degrees. So Good for making tea. It is good for making tea. It's a little bit too hot for a bath, yeah. I would say. But you let it come up and cool down a bit. Well, exactly. And the sudden energy of this warm water, this hot water, forces it along through these fissures and, I guess, pushes it northwest. And then it bubbles up underneath Bath. That's pretty cool. Which is so cool. And so the Romans found this. There were probably much more ancient cultures that found the hot springs first. So the Celts had been um, reported to have built temples around that region for quite some time. Uh, And then eventually the the Romans settled and started building more formal sort of lasting foundations around this bath. So have you seen the picture of the big main bath at Bath? I I don't think I have. Okay. So imagine... It's a big rectangular swimming pool I've kind of thing. Of, I've seen pictures of like Roman baths in books as a kid looking at ancient Rome. It's stuff. basically that. Yeah. I mean, it's probably it probably is that. Yeah. Um, like, look, kind of look like an indoor swimming pool. Yeah. Well, yeah. the one the one that the big main bath that you can go see mm. um, is is like a big swimming pool. It's really cloudy because this water's travelled through these vents it's got and all the limestone. Exactly. In it's it, right? full of minerals. Yeah. Um, it doesn't taste very good. I there is a place where you're allowed to taste it. Wouldn't imagine it would. No, it's yeah. very um, minerally. Yeah. Uh, which is some people like that. Yeah, um, mineral water is a thing. Exactly different, different thing, but still a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, then there's these big pillars built up um, around. So this is all underground, right? Yep. It's under the under the. It's underground. Well, it's below ground level of okay. today. Yeah, right. So you'll be driving along the streets in Bath, Mm. you know, catch the train there, and that's happening on, you know, level A. And then if you go into the museum where the Roman baths are, you sort of drop down a couple of stories. It's all open, so you can see the sky, but it's sort of... Excavated. Excavated down into the ground. Because what happened is after the Romans abandoned their occupation of England and headed back to Rome. No one was there to maintain the baths anymore. They silted up and basically over the hundreds and hundreds of years that they weren't there... All the dust settled. Yeah, basically, and filled them all in. So it's kind of a cool little system of different temperature baths. There's like the hot ones from where all the hottest spring water was bubbling up. And then they had... So that was called the coldarium. Then there was the tepidarium... Can you guess what temperature the tepidarium was? Slightly more tepid. It was. Yeah, it was run off from the hot one and exactly. gets a little bit cools down a little bit. Yep. Yeah. And then there was the frigidarium, oh. which was cold. Yeah, when they kept all the fridges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's where they stored their refrigerators. Yeah. Um, and so this was sort of part of the culture of, of um, meeting and communally bathing. And archaeologists started oh. digging this up, I think, in the 16th or 17th century, um, which is it's a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they weren't fully excavated until the 70s, early 80s. Okay. But people were sort of finding bits of them. But the best part that they found, yep. like just one of one of these other fantastic little insights into what life was like back then, mm. was they found curse tablets. 
This, <laughs> I, we should really just rename this episode Curses. Curses. So they found curse tablets, um, 130 of them. So a lot of them. What 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 is a curse tablet? So they're these nice thinly beaten metal sheets. They just have swear words written on them. Or? Sort of, or, almost. Oh, what they actually have written on them are sort of pleas to the to the gods to yeah. smite or punish people who have stolen your clothes while you've been bathing. Oh wow, that's great. So these people have gotten out of the baths and found that their wallets, uh, their purses have been taken or their clothes have been pilfered, yep. and they etch into these metal tablets. Um, a sort of almost prayer to the gods to, to get all their stuff exact back. vengeance on the person who stole it. Oh, that's great. So I've got um, two of my favourites here sort of roughly translated. Yeah. And so they're, they're addressed to the deity um, Sulis, yep. uh, who was the, I guess, I think more the Celtic deity of wisdom, which was then sort of Minerva, the Roman yeah, goddess okay. of wisdom. So one of them says, uh, Solanus to the goddess Sulis Minerva, I give to your divinity and majesty my bathing tunic and cloak. Do not allow sleep or health to him who has done me wrong, whether man or woman, whether slave or free, unless he reveals himself and brings those goods to your temple. <laughs> this person was really desperate That's to get their stuff back. Their, their cloak and their, their bathrobe. Um, sometimes they name themselves and sometimes they name the people they think have stolen them. This one is a guy called... Dosimedes. Yep. It says, Dosimedes has lost two gloves and asks that the thief responsible should lose their minds and eyes to the goddess's temple. That's brutal. I know. <laughs> it's like... You took my gloves. You should go insane and blind. Exactly. Wow. Which I don't think is an overreaction at all. So, so it's a really cool sort of meeting of geology and archaeology here. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the really cool things is that in 1810, mm. the springs stopped bubbling. So oh. people had already found quite a bulk of, of the hot spring. They knew it was there. They hadn't fully excavated it in all its glory yep. in 1810, but there was hot water bubbling up out of the ground and then it mm. stopped. Okay. And this guy called William Smith found that it wasn't that the water had stopped bubbling. It was just that it had started to be diverted along a different fissure oh. in the ground. And so it was heading off somewhere else. Okay. So all he did was got back down, did a little bit of digging around, closed off the path it had been bubbling down um, and reopened the original spring. That's pretty cool. So that's kind of the real practical plumbing. That's some geological plumbing there. Yeah, geological and archaeological plumbing, which is what we really like here on the Fuzzy Logic show. Yeah, you can't have a bath without plumbing. Exactly. Uh, We're going to go to another song. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX where we're talking about archaeology because it's National Archaeological... Awareness Week. No, it's no, not. It's just National Archaeology Week. Because yeah. it's National Archaeology Week. There you go. Uh, this song is called All Right by Supergrass. That was All Right by Supergrass. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. We hope you're having a lovely morning. Maybe you've been out in the garden with a trowel digging mm. around. Uh, finding broken bits of pottery and curses. Maybe finding some curse tablets. Yeah. Uh, people cursing those who have stolen their goods and their uh, trowels and their trowels we're not just ranting this is it's national archaeology week it is and it's super exciting because there are some amazing uh, archaeological projects that go on it's it's sort of classed as a social science some of the time but hey i think it falls under the category of science because yeah. of the methods that are used yeah it's a very methodical process and uh, rocks, rocks aren't very soft rocks aren't very, oh it's a hard science it's a, high, it's a hard science of rocks and 
pottery and coins. Uh, one of the other archaeological digs or sort of excavations that I really wanted to talk about quickly because it's just super interesting and it's really kind of dark and exciting is Pompeii, the discovery yeah. of the buried city, uh, which was pretty much decimated by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. It doesn't get more dark than that. No, it doesn't get darker. It doesn't get darker. In fact, I have a quote here from Pliny the Younger, uh, mm. who wrote an account of the eruption. Now, I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, because there was a Pliny the Younger and there was a Pliny, Pliny the, the Elder. elder. And the One Pliny... of them was on a boat watching Vesuvius erupt. Yeah. I sort of assume it's the Younger, based on this quote. He said, Broad sheets of flame were lighting up many parts of Vesuvius. Their light and brightness were the more vivid for the darkness of the night. It was daylight now elsewhere in the world, but there the darkness was darker and thicker than any night. Yeah, that's pretty horrifying. Yeah, so basically, big series of earthquakes in the sort of 10 or 12 years leading up to this um, volcanic eruption. Nobody really took them super seriously. It was kind of annoying. Uh, they were actually rebuilding Pompeii from one of the earlier earthquakes oh, when the eruption took place, uh, which is quite sad. But yeah, so it was this, this epic volcanic eruption from Mount Vesuvius. The pyroclastic flow, all this ash and heat and minerals and acid. Yeah, um, all bad stuff. Lots of bad stuff. Absolutely buried the city um, in ash and pretty much erased any knowledge of its existence for a very long time. Um, it wasn't until, once again, like the 1700s, I think it was, yeah, 1738, Herculaneum, which was nearby, started to be excavated. And then they basically found Pompeii in 1748. They started to uncover what, well, I mean, people knew it existed, but its existence had been pretty much eliminated yeah. from the human consciousness because yeah. of this, the scale of this disaster. The really cool archaeological tool that they employed, uh, once again, on the dark side, yeah. is that obviously well, there were... people buried in ash. There were human fatalities of this eruption, yeah. countless human fatalities, and their bodies would leave indentations in the ash. So um, the same way that, I guess, a fossil... Right. Gets... Well, so well, the way I understood it was basically you've got these a person that's been buried in ash, mm. and that ash solidifies into rock. Basically, basically the the person, the person decomposes, decomposes and rots away and leaves a hollow space, which is the shape of what that person the exact shape of the, what that person was like when that's... they were coated in the ash. Oh man! And so what they would do, and this is the very iconic image. If you go to any of the websites, or if you if you get a chance to go to the museum there, um, they would fill those indentations with plaster um, and pull out the plaster molds the casts of the people who had perished in this disaster. And apparently these days now they preserve these um, holes by filling them with clear resin instead because yeah. that actually preserves any bones left behind as well oh, man. just to add an extra yeah. level of darkness. Oh, that's so creepy. <laughs> yeah. Because all the bones would fall to the bottom of the hole Yeah, as well. exactly. So you'd have this out, out, out shape of a person with a pile of bones in the bottom of this gelatinous human Oh, man, that's so creepy. Yeah. It, had to talk about it because it's creepy. Yeah. But... Should have made that an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been way more interesting. But, Mitchell, you were going to talk to us a little bit more about more modern day excavations and, and a particular online resource you were saying? that. Yeah. That... So we've been talking about Howard Carter 
and Augustus Pitt Rivers and, and William Petrie, William Petrie, and all these other blokes. Mm. Um, but there's this really great website that I've found that's all about women in archaeology. Oh, fantastic! Um, it's called Trowel Trowel Blazers. Oh, okay, yeah, I like that. which is a good pun. Yeah, and I like puns as well. Mm. Um, T R O W E L Trowel Blazer. Nice. Um, and it's about women in in archaeology. Uh, and should go check it out because it's a pretty great website. It's a pretty cool resource. Um, if at the very least to read about Agatha Christie. Okay, so Agatha, I've heard of Agatha Christie. Yeah, Agatha Christie's the famous like detective story writer. Yeah, um, and she she did uh, she she did some archaeological work as well. But I'm not going to give the game away. You're going to have to go look it up. Oh, fantastic! Yep. I was I was having a look. I had a very very quick look before the show. Uh, and just saw that there were quite a few modern scientists as well. Yeah, which and they is... have they have um, historical accounts of women, female archaeologists, and they also have some interviews with some modern archaeologists. Well, as that's well. really fantastic. It's pretty cool. There's a, a pretty big ANU story going around about another female archaeologist. Yeah, so Professor Sue O'Connor is the lead archaeologist from ANU that made a really cool discovery very very recently. It's the world's oldest ground edge axe. Okay. So this is an this isn't an axe where you have the edge in the ground. <laughs> this is where you get your rock and you wear it away instead of chipping it or ah. bashing it or anything like that. Okay. You wear away the axe, wear away that rock until you get a nice edge on it. Nice. Uh, and they, they've they been dug up in Western Australia. So you, you get similar kind of axes. The oldest ones previously known were from Japan to be 35,000 years old. Sure. Um, most, most of the rest of the world, they show up around the same time as agriculture, like 10,000 years ago. Okay. But these these ground edge axes from the Kimberley region in Western Australia are between 46 and 49,000 years old. That's amazing. So that's some like cutting edge technology. <laughs> Did you <laughs> want to talk about this story purely for that pun? There's a pretty great pun. Yeah. Um cutting that was ed- real good. cutting edge technology way back when when the first indigenous Australians are showing up in Australia. That's fantastic. And it's so exciting that that discovery is being led by you know, Canberra and oh, ANU. Canberra, yeah. ANU has a really big um, anthropology unit. Yeah. Yeah. They do a lot of cool work. Yeah. It's yeah. really exciting. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic talking about everything that's been going yeah. down. Dishing out the dirt. Dishing out the dirt here on Fuzzy Logic. We've been digging into the stories. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to end. It's so good. <laughs> Curse you who do not like these puns. Anyway, it's been anyway. so fantastic spending today talking about archaeology, National Archaeology... Archeo- National Archaeology Week, <laughs> coming to a close. I'm, I don't know why I'm struggling with that uh, word so right. much. I'm that's so right. sorry. Archaeology, it's not, it's not a difficult tr- word. You're trying to say archaeological. I am. I'm trying, yeah. to, I'm trying to shorten that middle bit yeah. too much. It's, it's not National Archaeological Week. No. It's National Archaeology Week. National Archaeology Week. Here in Australia, third week of May. Put it in your diaries for next year so you can observe it correctly. Yep. Um, also put in your diaries uh, June 5th. Yeah, June 5th is the first National Fossil Day. The first observed so National Fossil, get fossil out, Day. Get out to the National Museum or the National Dinosaur Museum. Yeah. Yeah, fossils, 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 fossils. It's fantastic. There's so many interesting things to be found under the ground here on Fuzzy Logic. Thanks for joining us. Tune in same time next week for more Science on a Sunday. This has been Eleanor. And Mitchell. And have a great weekend. Yeah.